Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that this morning we can think about the great gift of your spirit, which you give to all who trust the Lord Jesus. Our Father, we pray that we would understand the greatness of this gift. And in your mercy, we would also know that you have given your spirit to us to turn our hearts to you and to enable us to live as your children, live like your son. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us all to understand it and receive it with faith and thanksgiving. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Today we start looking at the third section of the Creed. We believe in the Holy Spirit the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He is spoken through the prophets. And in particular, we're thinking this morning about the Spirit as the Lord, the giver of life. Now that phrase, like the others in this section, is there to affirm that the Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, truly and fully God, like the Father and the Son. In the face of those who in the 4th century when the creed was written wanted to think of the spirit as a created being or an impersonal force. The phrases are there to affirm that with the Father and the Son the spirit is the Lord of the Old Testament and that just as the Father and the Son have life in themselves and give life to whom they will, so does the spirit. But what I want to think with you about is why that's actually such good news that the spirit is the giver of life. Why it assures us that the one God, Father, Son and Spirit, saves completely as God the Holy Spirit works in our lives. And why through the Spirit's work, that salvation, that life he gives, is so rich. And because in a sense you can't understand the greatness of the gift without actually first understanding the greatness of our need, I want to start our thinking about this, not with God but with us, the way we are and the big picture that tells us why we are the way we are and tells us of our need of life. Now uh, you are all familiar with being human, You've most of you have been that for a while, so how would you summarise the human condition? I mean the reality is we're perplexing, a puzzle often to ourselves. I mean, the same blood runs through the veins of the doctors of Médecins Sans Frontières, well, as ran through the veins of those who wielded the machetes in the Rwandan massacres. Uh, We're capable of the self-sacrifice I see in the women and men who diligently visit their dementing spouses day after day at Villa Maria, and also the selfishness that walks out and leaves a partner with a disabled child. You know, we can be zealous for the pursuit of truth and yet cling to the most fantastic superstitions. People do read and believe the astrological predictions in the papers. We are a joy and a grief to ourselves. As Pascal, a French writer, said, what kind of freak then is man? How novel, how monstrous, how chaotic, how paradoxical, how prodigious, the judge of all things, feeble earthworm, repository of truth, sink of doubt and error, glory and refuse of the universe. 
that jostle of contradictions is us humans. And we know that in our own experience where we can love and be consumed with the hatred of others, where we can think clearly and at other times be driven by irrational anger or desire. So how would you describe humanity? A wonder, yes, a wretch, undoubtedly, and a long grief, a history of blood and brokenness and many, many deaths that catches us all up in its flow. Now, behind this experienced reality at the core of our existence, the joy and the grief, the achievement and frustration, the belonging and loss, the exaltation and shame, Scripture points to two events recorded at the beginning of the Bible, the fact of our creation and the fact of our fall. We're a wonder because each of us is made in the image of God, that is, made to relate to the eternal God, to each other, and to the non-human world that's been entrusted to our care and equipped by God for those relationships with thought and speech, creativity and moral judgment, a capacity to find delight in the world and help each other, people with eternity in our hearts and the universe from the smallest microbe to the furthest star open to our inquiring gaze. And yet we're also people who are flawed, flawed at the heart of our life as individuals and as a community because of our desire to be gods. Even if you haven't read the story of the fall in Genesis 3, you're probably familiar with Adam, Eve and the snake. But let me remind you of how it goes. The tempter was offering the woman something much greater than a piece of fruit. When the woman tells the serpent that God had said they mustn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and if they did, they would die, the serpent says, you will not die. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's what's on offer, being like God through knowing good and evil, being the one who can make the rules, who can decide for yourself what's right and wrong, who can shape reality, moral reality, to suit yourself. And to achieve this great prize, one, the woman, seeing the fruit was good for food, a delight to the eyes, desirable for obtaining wisdom, one, the woman concluded, suited her very well. Her appetites and desires and thirst for knowledge To achieve this great prize, all she and Adam have to do is disobey God, who had said, you must not eat of it. From the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. All they had to do was eat, not believe God, not trust God, but something that just comes so naturally, just eat. And they did. And from that time on, our relationships have been complicated by our selfishness by both our desire to have all around us serve us and our happiness as gods and our conflict with those who won't. And our labours and loves have been condemned to meaninglessness by the certainty of death and returning to the dust. And we know the grief of that. Listen to the author of Ecclesiastes. Just like the fool, there's no lasting remembrance of the wise, Since in the days to come both will be forgotten, how is it that the wise person dies just like the fool? Therefore I hated life 
because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me, for everything is futile and a pursuit of the wind. And yes, by that disobedience of God, we have been separated from the living God, who is the source of our life and all the good we enjoy in creation and on whose, every, whose will every breath we take depends, driven out of the garden and unable to find our way back because as a race we are still Adam's children. You see, we've embraced as a race the lie that only by disobeying God, doing, the things, doing things our way, not his, whether that's, for example, in relation to money or marriage or sexuality, only by doing things our way can we find real life, reach our full potential, fulfil our most cherished desires. And so as a race, we live reckoning the true God our enemy whose presence must be marginalised, whose greatness minimised, his commands rejected, and yes, in the end, his person murdered. At the heart of the human condition is the pursuit of what we can never be, gods, for we are creatures, not God. And our deep-seated hostility to the claims of our creator and God's just response to our rebellion His response that upholds his word, which both brought into being and sustains creation, our death. Now, how can the consequences of that act, which we live with every day in a disordered creation and disordered relationships, be overcome? How can the sentence of death be lifted? How can relationship with our creator be renewed? Well, you read on in the big story beyond Genesis 3 and you see that in response to Adam's sin and its consequences for humanity and all creation, God chose one man, Abraham, and his offspring, the people of Israel. And what we see in their story as we zoom in on this one family, this one people, is that the issues in humanity's relationship with its creator come clearly into focus and their history becomes a mirror in which we can see ourselves. So God makes promises to Abraham and his offspring, enters into a relationship with them, and in faithfulness to those promises, God blesses and multiplies Abraham's offspring, and then when they're oppressed, he rescues them from slavery in Egypt with spectacular works of power, the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. Then he formalises his relationship with them at Mount Sinai, committing himself to to them to be their God in covenant relationship with the people, giving them his law and the way they should live as his people. And he gives them then a land to live in the promised land. And so in a sense, Israel's got it all when it comes to relating to God, haven't they? They've experienced God's goodness and kindness in their rescue from Egypt. They're experiencing his continuing kindness in the provision of the land. And God's located his presence amongst them in tabernacle and temple. So he's near to them, near to be called upon by them. And they know what God expects of them, don't they? They've got the law, it's all clear. And you might expect, seeing God's goodness for themselves, knowing he is not a killjoy but a life giver, knowing what they had to do to live a good life with God, whose blessing and protection was their prosperity and peace, you might expect that they'd actually just get on with doing with what God says and keep on enjoying peace and life in God's presence. But what really happened? Well, they deliberately disobeyed. 
Even before Moses had time to bring the tablets with the Ten Commandments down from the mountain, they were worshipping the golden calf. They deliberately disobeyed and repeatedly. When God said they were to have no other gods, they went and worshipped other gods, dead idols, time and again. When God sent them prophets to call them back to himself and warn them of the dangers of their idolatry, they repeatedly ignored them and did worse things to them. And they suffered, suffered the disastrous consequences. Those prophets had warned them of drought, famine, oppression under foreign rulers, repeated war, and ultimately they lost that good land. You know, reading the history of Israel is a bit like watching the slow train wreck of a drug addict's life. The problem's identified, the necessary intervention is offered, but like an addict, they seem unable to heed, to act on the repeated pleas, threats and warnings of what would happen if they didn't change. Now, why is that? Why wasn't the law able to give them life and peace? Why were the prophets ignored? Why were they so unresponsive that their very existence was threatened? Well, in the context of God's final pleas to his people to turn back and live being ignored, and when as a consequence of that these people have suffered the ultimate penalty, Jerusalem destroyed, their king captive, the people exercised, God speaks to his people through the prophet Ezekiel and he pinpoints the problem. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone. That's the problem. The people have a heart of stone, which is a great picture and a sad reality. Now, when some years ago we remodelled the garden at Viewbank, I had the opportunity to get to know some rocks fairly well. Uh, They were actually pretty big ones and I needed to move them. So what were my options? I could perhaps try and persuade them. You know, the new spot, it's got the sun, it's, it's a much more pleasant environment. I could threaten them. You know, it's out on the road for you. But of course not. I used the dingo and it was a lot of fun because everyone knows rocks, stones are unresponsive to threats and persuasion, unresponsive because they are dead. The Israelites in their heart, the willing thinking core of the being of their being, are dead to God. They couldn't hear. They weren't interested. Oh yeah, and they couldn't change themselves. They can't change themselves. Even when the outcome of their refusal to listen to God was so clearly bad. And dead to God, they were dying. They'd lost land and community and were without hope. And you know, the Israelites are like this with hearts of stone, not because they are different from us, but because they are like us. They are us, children of Adam. And their history, as I've said, is a mirror in which we can see ourselves in our relationship with our Creator. Theirs is our situation in life. Left to ourselves in relation to God, we are dead. As Paul said to the Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead to God, unresponsive to his word, unable to change and so unable to escape the, the, the death that awaits us all. Now a heart of stone is a radical diagnosis of the human problem. 
but one that's been abundantly confirmed in Israel's history and in our own. And it's one we can't treat effectively by ourselves. You see, changing your heart isn't a matter of being better informed, knowing more. Israel knew God's will, clearly. Or having a better environment. Israel had the land of promise. Or better religious rituals. Israel had the priests and the temple. Even a matter of witnessing miracles. Now, you do hear of people occasionally in desperation removing their own appendix. It actually does happen. But brothers and sisters, no one can give themselves a heart transplant. It's a terminal exercise. We can't give ourselves the new hearts, the living hearts that will respond to God that we need. But with a radical diagnosis, God proposes a radical cure. I will also sprinkle clean water on you, he says through Ezekiel, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. There will be forgiveness, says God, being cleansed from all impurity. But forgiveness is not enough for life and God promises more heart surgery, a heart transplant, the gift of a new heart, a living heart, which is to give us new life, where we're no longer addicted to rejecting God, where we can know the freedom, verse 27, of doing God's will. A new life where we stop trying to be gods and acknowledge the creator as the only God, where we honour his name, his revelation of himself by believing what he says. And God says he will do this, verse 27, by giving us his spirit. I will place my spirit, the spirit of God within you. God giving us his life, animating us in a life of trusting obedience, the life we were made for with his own spirit. Now this is a cure plainly only God can perform. No one else can give us the powerful life-giving spirit. And so God is our only hope, isn't he? I mean, the only life humanity has is life from Adam, life committed to turning away from God, lived in defiance of God. And so everything else we might think might change us, that originates with us, whether it's philosophy or meditation or self-denial or turning over a new leaf, will fall short of what is needed, is unable to give us this new life where we love God and honour his revelation, where we live and don't die. That life has to come from outside of us, from God. And without this gift, we will keep on reaping what we sow and go closer and closer like a slow train wreck to the abyss of eternal destruction, unable to hear, to understand or to change direction. And what God promised, God, Father, Son and Spirit, has brought into being through the Father sending the Son who gives the Spirit to those who believe in him. Jesus, like Ezekiel, as you heard, spoke of the necessity of this new heart, this 
new life. Truly I tell you, he said to Nicodemus, John 3, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed that I tell you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now the Lord Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus of the meaning of the prophecy of Ezekiel. You must have a new life, a new birth, he says. If you are to live with God, live in his kingdom. Now talk of living in the kingdom can sound pretty abstract, can't it? But that was Nicodemus's desire because he knew that God's kingdom was peace, security, justice, life, the end of death, the end of the oppression of evil. It was living with God as we were created to do. And Nicodemus longed to live in the kingdom. But here Jesus is telling him that this necessary new birth is not in our power to produce. Flesh gives birth to flesh, the life of the age of this age to the life of this age. Only the spirit can give birth to spirit. But the spirit's not under our control. This new birth is the sovereign work of the spirit, whose effects, like the wind, will be known, but can't be directed by us. So we have to have this new birth, but we can't create it ourselves. So what hope is there? Thankfully, as the gospel goes on, we see that the Lord Jesus teaches us where we are to turn for this needed new birth. In John 7, he says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within. This he said about the spirit which those who believed in him were to receive. For the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Hear that? The Lord Jesus promises the Spirit to all who believe in him. The Spirit who is an inexhaustible fountain of life. And so it's to the Lord Jesus we must look for the Spirit, for this gift of needed new life. And Jesus, having promised the Spirit, also taught that the Spirit's coming to those who believed in him was dependent on his being glorified on his completing the work that the Father had given him. That work was his dying on the cross, when, as he said to Nicodemus, he would be lifted up, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, lifted up on the cross for all to find life, who would look and live, who would turn and trust him in his death for sin. And when that work was completed, and he had gone to the Father, Jesus said he would send the Spirit to his followers. If I go, John 16, I will send him to you. Send the Spirit who would be another counsellor with Jesus' followers forever, who will remain with his people and who will be in us. I will ask the Father, John 14, and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever. He's the Spirit of truth. The world's unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you know him because he remains with you and will be in you. And Jesus calls the Spirit the other counsellor because like our Lord, he will protect Jesus' people from the world. He will guide them into truth. He will sustain their witness in the world. 
and in whose presence their Lord will be present, just as in Jesus' presence the disciples were in the presence of God. And we read in Acts that wonderfully what our Lord Jesus promised, the ascended reigning Lord Jesus did. Verse 33, therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. God saving us. The Father, Son and Spirit, one in bringing new life to believers in Jesus as the Father gives the Spirit to the Son and the Spirit is given by Jesus to his followers. And just as Jesus promised in John 7, the Spirit's not just for those first disciples. It's for all who believe in Jesus, who believe that the crucified and risen Jesus is Lord and Christ. As Peter says to the crowd, repent and be baptised, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children And for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus, who has cleansed us by his blood, the Spirit is present with believers as the Spirit of life, new life from God. Jesus' great gift to all who believe in him. And let me say, if you know you're a believer in Jesus and yet you're uncertain about the work and the gift of the Spirit in your heart, by the end of this talk, Do come and talk because the Lord Jesus gives the Spirit to all who believe in him. And this new life is experienced in the reversal of the effects of Adam's sin. God doing in us what we could never do for ourselves. And so in place of distrust and alienation, resentment of God, there's actually a new relationship of trust and love where we call upon and know God as our Father, someone to whose arms we run, not someone from whose presence we flee. Know God as our Father, for the Spirit gives us the new life of God's sons and daughters and assures us of that life, assures us of what we could never hope to believe of ourselves. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. Oh yes, and in the place of distance, of being excluded from God's presence, we come in the spirit to the Father and are assured we belong to his people, those who are citizens of God's kingdom. For through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. The Spirit tells us we belong amongst God's people. And where we felt God's commands as a limitation on us and were unable to love God by doing his will, the Spirit gives us both a new desire and a new power to live God's way, to walk in the way of life. In fulfilment of the prophecy of Jeremiah that God would write his law on our hearts, the Spirit, the Spirit of God changes our hearts so 
that they incline to do his will. We want to do it. His will, which is now permanently present, written on our wills. And so we're freed from slavery to the power of sin, from the determination of the flesh, the life we've inherited from Adam, to rebel against God, that that rebellion, that slavery that was destroying us. And so at the end of a long section, Romans 6 through to 8, where Paul talks, in a sense, of the power of God's spirit to free us from the hold of the flesh to live for God, he says this, So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh because if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. As Paul says, it's actually by the Spirit that we can now put those sinful desires to death. And it is only by the Spirit. And yes, where we have new hearts, we're assured that will we're assured that, that will show. We're assured that the Spirit is active in our lives to bear its fruit as we give ourselves to the Spirit's work the fruit of the character of a life pleasing to God, the life of God's children. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. The law is not against such things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And brothers and sisters, if you're a believer in Jesus... That's why if you are battling against some kind of sin that keeps coming up and keeps getting you down, you should be optimistic. God is at work in you through his spirit and where you give yourself to that work, you will change. God will bear the fruit of his spirit in your life. But the Spirit does more than overcome the alienation from God and change our hearts to delight in God and his will so that our identity is found in relating to God as his children and not in rebelling against God. Amazing, isn't it? He does more. That's a wonderful work. But the Spirit does more. The Spirit of God in us is the guarantee that death, the death of sin will be overcome by the Spirit himself being the powerful life of God that will sustain our resurrection life. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit's life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his Spirit who lives in you. In fact, that risen body is described by Paul in 1 Corinthians as a spiritual body. Verse 45, 1 Corinthians 15. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. And a spiritual body is one that's not made up of spiritual stuff, but one that's animated by the life we receive from Christ, the life he gives us in giving us his powerful spirit, the spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. And the Spirit is the power of that new life, 
of resurrection life, which will come in due time, is then spoken of as the down payment of all God's promises, the deposit that guarantees to the rest, that guarantees to us the rest of what God has promised us. In him, writes Paul to the Ephesians, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of the glory. It's that part of the payment that guarantees the rest. And the Spirit's also spoken of as Romans 8, the first fruits of the age to come. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. You see, the Spirit spoken here is the first part of the harvest that is both present enjoyment and the anticipation of all that will come of the rest of the harvest, the anticipation of the fullness of our enjoyment, of the fullness of God's promises in the resurrection to the new heaven and earth. And as down payment and first fruits, it's the Spirit who sustains us in a present and real hope, a sure hope that keeps us longing for and moving towards the heavenly kingdom. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, and we believe because every believer in Jesus has experienced the life the Spirit brings. We experience it in lots of ways. The life the Spirit brings us, they experienced, as Paul teaches in Corinthians, in listening to God's word with understanding and in believing the gospel, confessing Jesus as Lord. The Spirit's experienced in crying out to God as our Father in our hearts, in our characters being changed by the work of the Spirit in us. Oh, the Spirit's experienced experienced in living with our lives sustained and directed by the hope for what we do not yet see, our resurrection. We believe in the Spirit because that is a believer in Jesus' experience. And yes, we're not passive in these experiences. Oh yeah, we're the people who believe the word preached. Our spirit cries out with God's spirit. We put to death sin. We keep in step with the Spirit. We give ourselves to the Spirit's longing in us. But our work, our activity, has its origins in the Spirit's activity. And when we confess the Spirit as the giver of life, we're also confessing that without the Spirit, the Spirit of God, we would have no life but still have a heart of stone. We believe And we rejoice in the Spirit. Rejoice that God is at work to keep his promise, to fulfil his purpose, to have a people for himself through whom his name will be honoured. And so pours himself out in the pouring out of the Spirit of God to bring that about. We rejoice in that. And we rejoice to know God through God as the Spirit opens our eyes to Jesus' glory. Rejoice to be moved now by to God by God, as the Spirit gives us a heart to love him. Rejoice to be changed into the image of the Son through the Spirit's mighty work in us. Rejoice to have the Spirit of the Son to raise us to share the resurrection life 
of the Son. Believing in the Spirit, we rejoice in God, Father, Son and Spirit, the one who saves and saves completely. And I hope that is your experience if you're a believer, that you have joy in the Holy Spirit. But as well as being a cause for joy, believing in the Spirit is a cause for godliness. Scripture warns us that those who receive the life from the Spirit must live that life with the Spirit, live lives that are consistent with the Spirit's presence in us. And so as those who believe in the Holy Spirit, who know the work of the Spirit, we need to hear those warnings this morning. Here's one, Ephesians 4, don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You are sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgives you in Christ. There are certain things that should never be present in a believer's life. How we speak to others is not a matter of whatever we feel like at the time. As believers, we never have a right to wield anger like a club, to seek to control another with shouting or abuse. And this is not advice. This is not a matter of how you're brought up or what you think others are used to. Paul is saying the spirit who is in us is grieved, the spirit who hears every word you speak. So how you conduct yourself in your home, how you speak to those in your care actually matters. Just as what you think in your heart matters. Don't grieve the spirit, says St Paul. Only speak to build up others, speak the truth in love. That's all that's fitting for those who have God's spirit. Or again, 1 Corinthians 6, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who's sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Glorify God with your body. Now, we, like the Corinthians, live in a world where sexual immorality is not just tolerated but celebrated. But, says St Paul, we have to be different because we are different. God's spirit dwells in us. And hopefully you know that. And so you don't dare to commit sexual immorality in the presence of your God, in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Hopefully you know that when you're tempted to click on this image, to watch that movie, to think those thoughts. Hopefully you think, I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. How could I dare to bring my holy God into the presence of these images, these thoughts that demean and debase? Or when James is rebuking the greed of those he's writing to, their love of the world and their covetousness, he writes James 4, do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? 
God hates our idolatry of money and material things. And says James, he is zealous through his spirit to protect the love of his people for himself. And he won't be content to let you love money. Find your security in it. We believe in the Holy Spirit because trusting Jesus from Jesus, we've received the spirit of life. So brothers and sisters, heed the warnings. Let the spirit turn you away from anger and malice and controlling and abusive speech, from sexual immorality, from greed and covetousness. Let the spirit turn you away from those things to give yourself to what pleases him, the fruit he bears in your life, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. As you live by the spirit, keep in step with the spirit March to the beat of the Spirit's drum by every day, every moment, saying no to sin and yes to God's good will. Give yourself to the Spirit so that you will be changed by him to live the life of children of God, a life like our Lord's, a life of love that can build up others and bring honour and glory to our holy God. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the extraordinary work of our Lord Jesus on the cross that he could so atone for our sins, so cleanse us of sin that we could be those in whom your Holy Spirit dwells. And we thank you for this great gift that the Spirit of God would come to live in us, to give us new life, new hearts that can delight in you, that can turn to you, that can live lives that please you. Oh, yes, and which can also make us long for that resurrection of which the Spirit himself assures us as the power of God in us to raise us from the dead. Our Father, we pray, confessing we believe in the Spirit, help us to give ourselves to the Spirit's work in our lives so that we would live the lives of your children and rise with your Son at the last day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.